Ron, I think there's hope for us. It's pretty uh, complicated stuff, but a couple of us made it. You know, one of the more difficult but potentially rewarding activities that a manager can do is performance appraisals. That's when you have a formal opportunity to sit down with an employee and and to coach them and encourage them and to help them to grow in their ability to perform their various job functions. Over the years, I have delivered many, many performance appraisals, most of them done well wearing the banker's hat. But my customary way of doing such things is to provide the employee with with a blank appraisal form and a reminder of their job description, and I would do that a few days before the scheduled performance appraisal, and I would ask them to go through it and to rate themselves against their their uh, uh, job description as to how they think they have done in the prior year. And I, what I've found is that when I sit down with the person at that point, we now have a source of uh, dialogue like in the places where we don't agree, where they've rated themselves perhaps higher than I have or perhaps lower than I have, that's given us opportunity to talk. And, and I have found throughout the years that most people rate themselves lower uh, than I would in many categories. People, uh, when, you, when you do that, it sort of um, causes them to think more seriously about themselves. However, there was uh, an employee that I had one time who was a very marginal performer and probably would have been better suited to do something other than what they were doing. And I went through that process and and gave this individual um, the blank performance appraisal and she filled it out and we sat down, she handed it to me and I found that she had rated herself excellent or exceeds expectations on every single one of the job classifications and I had rated her less than satisfactory or marginal in the same areas. And so um, it was obvious that we were not connecting at all with that individual. And, um, of course, she didn't work for us too much longer after that. But anyway, uh, it's important to have an accurate picture of who you are and how you're doing. So open your Bibles to Revelation Chapter 3 this morning, that's page 1227 in those pew Bibles, if that's what you're using this morning. And uh, we're looking this morning and next week at the seventh and final church here in the book of Revelation, the uh, church at Laodicea. And this was a church who did not have an accurate assessment of who they really were and how well they were doing. And so Jesus writes to this church, actually, I believe, to the pastor of this church and through him to them, and uh, provides some very strong words. No stronger words, I think, can be found in the New Testament anywhere other than perhaps Matthew 23, where Jesus addresses the Pharisees. So these are very, very strong words. As we look at this text together this morning, beginning in verse 14, we will note five facets of Christ's examination of the church at Laodicea that we must understand so that we can discern what makes for a truly great church in the eyes of Christ. 
to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, and that you may become rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As has been our custom in these other six churches, it is important to have some background material with regard to this church in order to enter into the context of what Jesus has to say here. And so let me do that for you here briefly this morning and take you back a couple of thousand years on a time machine to a city called Laodicea. The city was actually founded in the 2nd century B.C. on the Lycus River Valley about 100 miles east of Ephesus. That would put it in southeastern Turkey. The city was strategically placed, as most of the ancient cities were, at a juncture of several very important trade routes that the commerce would flow inland from, and it connected the interior of southeastern Turkey with the coastal regions. So it was a very important city placed at a, at a critical crossroads. It occupied a plateau, a very square plateau located a couple of hundred feet above the surrounding countryside. It made for natural fortifications. And so with the hills that flowed out from it and its elevated status, it was a very strong and strategically located city in that sense. But this huge benefit was more than offset by a glaring weakness. And that is its water supply. The Lycus River is a very thin and muddy stream. And so in the early days of the placement of the city, it provided enough water. But as the city began to grow with its commerce, its water supply became meager and inadequate. And so the city fathers recognized the need to do something about that, to offset this natural disadvantage. And what they chose to do was to build an aqueduct. And so hollowed out of three-foot diameter rock stones, they made two long water pipes that went several miles in length to where they could receive a better and more um, reliable source of water. These stone water pipes were partially buried beneath the ground to try to make them secure from invaders. 
But the reality of the matter is that in time of siege, this was a very vulnerable city. It wouldn't take long for a defector or a spy to realize where the water supply would come from and it wouldn't take much to sever it and bring the city to its knees. And so the Laodiceans over time, recognizing the fact that they were vulnerable, chose a course of compromise to be the better way to get along. And so what they would do is to to compromise or to negotiate with whatever invaders might come their way. The whole point being preserve the commerce. Commerce was everything to the city of Laodicea. They stood on no principle other than money, making money. The city of Laodicea had two sister cities as well. One was known as Heropolis. The other is familiar to you in the new, through the New Testament by the name of Colossae. Heropolis was located six miles away, Colossae ten miles away. But beyond that, it was interesting because Heropolis had a very uh, um, valuable source of water themselves. There were mineral springs that boiled and bubbled up in Heropolis, very hot water, and it had medicinal value. And so it made for a natural asset, whereas the city of Colossae had access to a, to a clear and cold running water supply themselves. So here's Heropolis with their boiling mineral water. Here's Colossae with their cold drinking water. And here is Laodicea with neither. The water supply to Laodicea as it flowed through those pipes would accumulate mineral deposits. It would be warmed by the sun. And by the time it reached the city, it was not exactly a Gatorade. Laodicea's water supply was, the, was known for being that which you would not want to drink. Now, in spite of these problems, under Roman occupation, the city continued to grow. It had a banking system, a regional banking system that was well-known and very profitable. Also, the, the area was fertile and, uh, and used to graze sheep that had a particular black kind of wool that was very desirable in the ancient world. And so a massive textile industry grew up around Laodicea. Beyond that, there was a medical school not too far away that had developed a certain potion or eye salve that could be applied to the uh, people's eyes who had suffered disease. It became so well known throughout the ancient world, it was a highly desired commodity. So through banking, through textile, through medical industries, this city became fabulously wealthy. They were so wealthy, in fact, that in A.D. 60, the city was completely destroyed in an earthquake. Yet they rebuilt the city from their own resources without having to go to the imperial coffers of Rome at all and ask for any help. Now, just to kind of put that into perspective, beloved, not so long ago, the city of New Orleans was destroyed, right? And it was not completely destroyed. And yet, look how that city was unable to raise itself. Yet the city of Laodicea, leveled in an earthquake through its own internal financial means, was able to completely rebuild itself. This was a city whom Tacitus, the Roman historian, wrote that they arose from the ruins by the strength of their own resources with no help from us. They were wealthy. They were successful. 
They needed help from neither God nor man. And very tragically, that mindset had slipped into the warp and woof of the church itself. Jesus begins to address this church here in verse 14 with his command. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write. Christ takes to himself, as he does habitually in these other letters, certain titles. These titles speak to the problems that he's addressing in these various communities. And so here he takes to himself four titles. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. Now this first title, the Amen, is a rather unique title that he would take to himself and only here. It probably reflects Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, where there in the Hebrew, Yahweh refers to himself as the God of Amen. And so that probably lies behind Jesus' use of the title here in verse 14. The word Amen literally means be firm, be firm. And it, and it communicates the idea of that which is valid or that which is binding or that which is correct. Jesus himself, as you know, liked this term, transliterated into the Greek, amen, or coming to us, amen. He spoke of it often. He would say, truly, truly, right? Or perhaps verily, verily in your translation, amen, amen. And he would use it to call people's attention to some statement or teaching that he was to make. Communicating the idea of certainty. Jesus spoke with certainty, and so he would punctuate his teaching with this twofold use of the word Amen. Here he turns it into a title, right? He calls himself the Amen. That is, the one in whom certainty resides. The one in whom is credibility. The one in whom that which he says will be accomplished. He is about to unleash on this church a very penetrating and scorching evaluation of who they are. And so he starts right out by letting them know that this is certain. This is the one who will accomplish that which he promises. He goes beyond it here and he calls himself the faithful and true witness. These adjectives express trustworthiness, genuineness, that which was conspicuously absent from these Laodicean believers, this church here, is that they were neither faithful nor genuine, but he is the faithful and genuine one. Finally, he calls himself the beginning of the creation of God. Now here he is not expressing origin. He's not speaking of his origin. He is talking about himself as the originator, as the beginner, as the one who is sovereign over creation. It is very possible that this church had slipped into an error similar to that which Paul addressed 35 years earlier to the church at Colossae. We see similar kind of terminology over in Colossians 1. We're not going to go there and develop that, but you can check it on your own. Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20, where Paul addresses this same kind of idea with Christ as the preeminent one. Christ as the originator of creation. Christ as the sovereign over creation. In the laxness of 
their following of Christ here, it seems as though the church at Laodicea, perhaps, as I say, following after Colossae earlier, has pulled Christ down from his throne. He is no longer in their mind the unique one. He is no longer the one whom deserves all of their focus, all of their attention, all of their sacrifice and service. And so by virtue of these titles, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning or the originator of creation, Jesus is calling attention in a most sobering way to about to that which he is about to say. He is going to warn this church and he is going to promise this church that something drastic is coming upon them. What is that that he is promising them? Well, it appears to us here, beginning in verse 15, where we have his condemnation. Notice, by the way, that there is no commendation for this church. There is no commendation here at all for this church, only condemnation. In a perfect and complete knowledge of the church and every individual who makes it up, Jesus finds nothing to commend. Of all seven churches, this is the only church in which there is no uh, nothing or no individual even to commend at all. There are churches, other churches that he didn't give a commendation to, but he at least found an individual or two within the church to speak of. Here, none. Even the church at Sardis. The church at Sardis, that sinfully superficial church, there had a few people, Jesus said, who had not soiled their garments. You remember that? Here at Laodicea, no one is called out. No one is spoken of in a favorable way. No one escapes the scathing evaluation of Christ. I know your deeds, verse 15, he says. I know your deeds. That is, not just that I observe that which you are about. I know the motives behind your deeds. I can read you like a book. I know you inside and out. I know your heart. And I know that you are neither cold nor hot. You see, he immediately draws their attention to something which is very familiar to them. This is part of their everyday life. This is something that they would learn from their earliest childhood, and that is the water at Laodicea is not good to drink. It's never cold, and it's never really hot. It's just this tepid water. And so he uses that analogy to evaluate this church. He says, you are just like your water supply. You are neither cold nor hot. And the idea behind hot here is boiling. Okay, boiling. Literally, you are not boiling nor are you cold. You are lukewarm. You are not like Heropolis with the boiling mineral waters. You are not like Colossae with the cold and cool and refreshing waters. You're like a cup of coffee that's sat out on the counter all afternoon. Nobody wants to drink it. I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. He uses this metaphor to speak of their spiritual fervency. This is a church that is not on fire for Christ. But it is also a a church or, or, or it's comprised of people that are not cold to Christ. Neither hot nor cold. Notice what he says here. I would that you were cold 
or hot. You have enough religion to disguise your need for a living faith. I think that would be a good way to say this. You have enough religion to put a veneer on it, to disguise who you really are. And I would rather that you were cold or hot than that you existed in this spiritually tepid state. Now, this is eye-popping, or it ought to be. I mean, at least a few of your faces are awake here and are showing me that, right? And Jesus is saying here, I would rather that you were cold to me than lukewarm. That's incredible. What he's saying, in effect, is I, I'd rather you were an honest atheist than a lukewarm, tepid follower. Why? Why would he say such things? I think perhaps one of the reasons is, is at least someone who is cold to the gospel understands the significance of the gospel and knows enough to reject it. He who is militantly opposed to Christ at least understands the stakes involved. But you who have this thin veneer of Christianity, this shallow, tepid, flabby, insincere, marginal attachment to Christ. You make me sick. He says, you make me sick. Beloved, this thin veneer covers much of evangelicalism today. There is a thin veneer of Christianity out there. There are many user-friendly churches that make no demands for serious discipleship. They have, in a sense, vaccinated people, inoculated them against the real thing. There is a sense in which it is communicated in many pulpits in this country that your commitment to Christ can be very shallow. And that's okay. You profess Him as your Savior. You can have Him as your Lord if you want or if you don't want. Optional Christianity. Be reminded, listen for a moment, as to how Jesus describes what it means to decide to follow him. You remember Jesus tells the parables about those who would seek to follow him. And he says, what man would, um, would construct a tower without sitting down first to figure out the cost, right? Lest he be thought a fool when he cannot complete it. What king among you, when being attacked by another army, does not first evaluate whether he has enough strength to go out and meet that army, or if not, he sues for peace while they're still a long way off? The landscape is littered with people who have begun for Christ and have not completed the race. There are broken bodies all over the track. Listen to what Jesus says. You want to follow me, Luke 14, 26? You must hate your family, he says, if you want to follow me. You want to follow me, Luke 14, 27? Pick up your cross and die. You want to follow me? John 6, 53, then eat my flesh and drink my blood. Interested in following Christ? Mark 10, 21, sell everything, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. 
Strive to enter through the narrow gate, he says. Beloved, following Christ is a serious deal. It requires the jettisoning of all other valuables of our life. It is a loyalty that has to exceed all other loyalties. In, in comparison, we must be willing to hate those that are of our own flesh and blood if that's what it means to follow Christ. We must be willing to give all our possessions away. We must be willing to die, he says. You know, it's fascinating when you read the Gospels. Just when Jesus is getting popular, just when the crowds are really beginning to swell, he does something like turn around and say to them, unless you were willing to die and hate everybody, then you can't be my disciple. And guess what happens? All the crowds are gone again. He's back down to a small core. And they build him up all over again, right? A few more miracles, right? Heal a few more people, feed a few more people. The crowd's big again. And he turns around and says, unless you want to follow me, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot follow me. John 6, and they all go away. Jesus is saying here, verse 15, He is saying, in effect, that He's Laodiceans. I'd rather you reject me or follow me, but stop hanging around and confusing everyone. You are either with me or you are against me. But I'm not interested in crowds for crowds' sake. I'm not interested in superficial followers. I'm not interested in tipid, lukewarm, vile, disgusting attachments. They make me sick. Verse 16, because you are lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth, he says. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now this immediately brings... To mind a question. What is the spiritual status of these people, right? I have been wrestling with this question all week long. And the answer is today, this morning, which was different than two days ago and maybe different two days hence. How's that? Because I think it is really difficult. It is really difficult. I have gone from thinking that they are somehow just believers, but weak, backslidden, fleshly kind of believers. And yet what he threatens with them appears a, a threat that I'm not sure how it comes upon a real believer. And so I'm tipped this morning, and I'll just say it here, and I can always amend it, I suppose, next week, that I think they're not believers at all. I think they're make-believers. I think based on the description of what he gives to them in verse 17, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked, that they will be vomited out of his mouth. And he's talking here about those who have hypocritically professed faith in Christ. People who expect that their profession of faith will substitute for their possession of faith at the day of judgment. Those who are Christian in name only. I will spew you out of my mouth. Verse 16. He's going to vomit this church out. When? How? Well, the context of the book of Revelation, right? As we have labored away in these other six churches is leading up to what? The tribulation. Chapters 6 through 19 is that awful tribulation time. And certainly in the context of the church just prior to this, the church at Philadelphia, the promise to them was that he will come and rescue them from the 
great day of destruction to come upon the whole world. I think in context here, the vomiting out of this church is an event that occurs at the point of the rapture. At that moment in time when Christ descends to receive his church unto himself, then the true church will be revealed. Those that have had a superficial attachment to Christ, a a lukewarm commitment, a hypocritical faith, will be left sitting in these pews. And that, beloved, is a sobering thought. That is a sobering thought. The true church will be caught away. The false church will be sitting right here. I was talking with someone a couple of weeks ago, and I don't remember whether it was something he actually did or something he always thought of doing, but it was the idea of putting a sign in the Christian bookstore that said, in case of rapture, all Bibles are free. Probably a good idea, huh? Beloved, I fear for the church. I fear for the church. When the rapture comes, that there will be many left wanting. Because you say, verse 17, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. What was their lukewarmness? This is This is it. This is Christ's diagnosis. What does it mean to be lukewarm for the church at Laodicea? It's to say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. It's the idea that I am self-satisfied. I've got all that I need. And a failure to recognize how much they really need Christ. They are secure in their affluence. They're unaware of the reality that they are just the opposite of a way they appear to be. They think they've got everything they need and they've got nothing. They're indifferent to the things of Christ and worse, they are ignorant of their own indifference. This is terrible. This is terrible. When I first became a follower of Christ, I was haunted by Matthew 7. Where he said in the final, in the days, right? You will say to me, but Lord, Lord. And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. I was terrified of that possibility. Beloved, it's the same thing here. These people at the final day will say, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. You think you've got everything and you've got nothing. Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. You are self-sufficient and you are entirely insufficient. With respect to your riches, you are but a beggar. With respect to your overflowing banks, you are poor. With respect to your famous eye salve, you are blind. With respect to your flourishing textile industry, you are naked. Miserable, wretched, poor, blind, naked. These adjectives, by the way, just grammatically are all coordinated or connected together. There's only one definite article that controls all five of them. That is that they are all applied together. They are, they are a combined description. 
of the reality of this church. What does it mean to be lukewarm? It's to, it's to be rich and self-satisfied, to think you've got everything you need, and the reality, you've got nothing. In all of these areas, you fall short. You're like the king in Hans Christian Andersen's fable, right? The emperor's new clothes. You've all read it, I assume. It takes one brave soul to look out and say, but he's got nothing on. I've been wrestling with this text all week long. And I have been wrestling with how to apply it to us. There is a temptation, beloved, to sit here and say, look at those people. Look at those people. What is wrong with them? Why can't they see? If we do that, we miss an opportunity for the Spirit of God to work in our heart. The Proverbs say, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. I'm going to wound a few of you this morning, maybe all of you, as I begin to apply this text to us. I want you to know as I begin to apply this, and I wound you, that I do it like verse 19, because I love you. And because we dare not let this opportunity go by us. I fear for some that your Christianity is lukewarm. That should the rapture occur this morning now in this place, that you would not all go. That there are some of you who will be left behind. In what ways is your Christianity lukewarm this morning? Let me suggest some. That by the Spirit of God, you can search your heart, see if these things might not be so. There are some among us this morning who know they need to take the step of discipleship and follow in believers' baptism. You are out there. You profess Christ. Yet you resist to make a public statement if you refuse Christ's baptism and you know you are to take it you are demonstrating the characteristics of a lukewarm Christian there are others whose attendance at church is optional sporadic occasional it constantly challenges my heart beloved to see the attendance in this place fluctuate at times by as much as 25% from week to week. And I wonder to myself, where is one quarter of the church on any given Sunday? We live in Southern California, the entertainment capital of the world. I know there are a lot of options. God loves this church and because we are part of His church, so much He gave His only begotten Son, right? If God loves the church that much, how much should we love it? 
We need you here. You need to be here. It's not optional. If your attendance is sporadic, it is an indicator that your Christianity is lukewarm. Some of you have a coldness to the Scriptures. You have no interest, no real interest in the Word of God. How do I know? Because you don't read it. You do not read it. You go week by week and you seldom crack your Bible. You've never read it through from cover to cover. You're not sure of its contents. If someone asked you to find a book, you couldn't do it. You don't know the Word of God. It has no longing for your heart as the deer pants for the water brook, right? So my soul longs after thee. You will find God when you meet Him in His Word. If you're not reading His Word regularly, passionately, deeply, you're demonstrating symptoms of a lukewarm Christianity. Some have a shallow and inconsistent prayer life. Their communication with God is a sporadic, you know, dash off a fast prayer in the car on the way to work. No real communion, no depth to it. No attendance at the public prayer meetings of the church in which we war together. This is true of you. You have characteristics in your life that demonstrate a lukewarmness towards Christ. For others, there is a lack of confession of sin. I can't remember the last time they've confessed their sin. They go day after day after day, week after week, month after month, and never confess. If confession of sin is not a regular part of your life, you are demonstrating a lukewarmness towards Christ. There are others who are proud and unsubmissive in spirit. It manifests itself both inside the church and outside the church. They are rebellious against authority. They are unwilling to humble themselves, to receive direction. They're independently minded. The lack of submission is characteristic of your life. You should be concerned. That you perhaps are lukewarm to Christ. Some are unwilling to serve in the church. Week after week, month after month, year after year, they occupy space. And that they never serve. The Apostle Paul says that if you are a child of God in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, then you have received spiritual gifts that are for the edification of the body, the mutual ministry one to another, not for your private enjoyment. If you withhold that which God has given to you as a stewardship to be ministered among the body and you refuse, in what way is your Christianity to be considered hot? It's lukewarm. It's lukewarm. You pretend to be a Christian. Others have a lack of concern 
for the advancement of the gospel. I got mine. Let the rest of them go to hell. No concern for the souls of men and women, boys and girls. How can you be changed by Christ and care not for others? Whether the gospel advances or not doesn't concern you. You don't even think about it. You don't pray for it. You don't plan for it. You don't take any active steps to try to to enable it to happen. Christianity is lukewarm. They're silent around others with regard to the truth of Christ. You're at work and they're around the water cooler and people are beginning to speak and your mouth is closed. You say nothing. Quiet. Silent. Go along. Make no waves. Don't let anybody know where my allegiances lie. That way I don't bring any persecution on myself. Christianity is lukewarm. Others struggle with a lack of generosity. A lack of generosity. God has given lavishly to us. He has poured out the blood of His only begotten Son. If He has given us Christ, Paul says, will He withhold from us any good thing? Answer, no. And yet there are people, I'm just going to be direct, that the offering plate passes you by week after week after week and you put nothing in or less than the price of a hamburger. You consume your wealth on yourselves. Beloved, we are the wealthiest generation to claim the name of Christ that has ever lived. Ever lived. Both historically in the church and currently throughout the world, there are no wealthier Christians than us. We are it. And to whom much has been given, much will be what? Required. Seldom do we talk about money. Maybe to our own shame. Maybe we should talk about it more. The national averages for those who claim to be born again followers of Jesus Christ is paltry. Less than 2% of their income. Think of what could be done in terms of missionary endeavor to reach the world for Christ if people began to get serious and give. People withhold their time. They've got time for all kinds of things. Sports, their kids' sports activities, the school activities, the neighborhood you know, garden club, whatever it is. But there's no time for the church. No time. Let me just ask you a question. If everyone gave like you do, if everyone gave like you do in terms of time and finances, how would it work around here? What would happen? Think about it. There are others whose ethics in the business world make them indistinguishable from everybody else. Monday through Friday, while they operate in the business world, 
interfacing with customers and employees and suppliers and so forth, their ethic is no different from those who do not claim Christ. Bend the truth. Out and out lie. Sell shoddy product. Falsely advertise. Refuse to give an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. Steal from your employer. These characterize your life. You are lukewarm for Christ. You are lukewarm for Christ. Others have an unrestrained sensuality that spews out in all kinds of filth. And it reaches to the highest levels. A couple of weeks ago, there was a man who stood in a pulpit of a congregation of 14,000 people, all the while reading, leading a hypocritical double life. The use of pornography amongst those who profess the name of Christ is rampant everywhere. Beloved, these things should not be so. In what real and meaningful way are you following Christ with a passion? And the passion of your heart is directed towards having sex with some computer image or glossy piece of paper or whatever it is. These things should not be. Others have a greater concern for what people think of their spirituality than what God thinks of it. Their time, their attention, their energy is all upon the outside, making it look good for those who would look on to, to be thought pious. Heaven forbid anyone should see my children doing something that is wrong. I'll make sure that I'm in all the right places and my kids all say, yes, ma'am, no, sir, toe the mark, right? I'll get all the externals done right and then people will think I'm godly. The inside my heart is full of corruption. There's no longing for Christ. There's no passion coursing through my veins. I'm lukewarm. I care not. I am complacent with regard to the state of my soul. Beloved, do not be complacent about your soul. What will a man give in exchange for his own soul? Jesus says, do you not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth, probably the most sensual church of the New Testament, perhaps with the exception here of Laodicea, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself? That Jesus Christ is in you. Unless indeed you fail the test. 
Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Beloved, I wound you as I've been wounded this week. That together we might repent and come fully to Christ. Think on these things. Let's pray. Lord God, you have stripped us bare this morning. Your word is like a two-edged sword. It has cleaved us down the middle. Lord God, that which you wound is that which you will heal. And so we beseech you to flood your grace upon us even now. That our Father, we might return to the fountain of grace in Christ and Him alone. Lord God, I pray for the people here this morning. Some who do not know You. They do not know God nor Christ in any saving way. Open their eyes. Grant them the faith to embrace Christ fully. And Father, those of us who do know Christ, we too need this evaluation. May you grant us the grace to purge, to resist, to fight against, to put off that which characterizes the flesh and to put on Christ, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. For Jesus' sake, amen. As we come to sing this last song, Ron, there will be some folks over here by this lighted cross. Through that door, there is a room. It's a private room where you can come and you can do business with Christ. Those folks are there to assist you, to aid you, to answer any questions you might have, to open the Word of God with you, and to take you to the truth, to cleanse your heart. Don't walk out this morning. The Spirit of God is tugging on you this morning to do something, to make it right with Christ. Then you come. There's no, there's no merit in the coming of it in and of itself. But you come, you let us work with you, help you, show you the way that you might be right with Christ. Run.